Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back, or welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs, and this is season number six. I'm really excited for today's conversation with Dr. Michael Gervais, high-performance psychologist working in the trenches of high-stakes environments with some of the best athletes and elite performers in the world. His clients include world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed artists, musicians, and Fortune 500 CEOs. Michael Gervais is also the host of the highly acclaimed Finding Mastery podcast, where he unpacks and decodes the psychological frameworks and mindset skills of elite performers. Mike's work has been really influential to me and my work with athletes and clients, so I think you're going to get a lot out of today's episode. Before we get started, a quick shout out to Progressive, who are sponsoring today's show. When our mind isn't in the game, we know our body and our performance get compromised, either at the gym, at home, or even in our workplace. Our mindset and mental health is so important for our overall health and wellness. You'll hear evidence-based strategies in today's episode from Dr. Gervais about dealing with fear, developing your personal philosophy, key principles to mindfulness, and so much more. Progressive offers multiple clinically proven formulas to support yourself during times of stress so you can make it through those long, hard days. I love this herbal combination, Progressive Resilient Mind, which provides a powerful combination of adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha, plus other supportive ingredients like GABA. It helps relieve mental fatigue, supports cognitive function, and helps to improve our mental and physical performance after periods of mental or physical exertion. This is a huge edge in today's world where distraction and stress are everywhere. All ingredients are natural, pure, and authentic, and botanicals are tested for their quality. Progressive is committed to safe and effective formulas to ensure the highest quality standards and results. For listeners of the podcast, you can go to progressivenutritional.com. That's ProgressiveNutritional.com. Use the promo code BUBS to claim 10% off your order. That's ProgressiveNutritional.com. Unlock your next level. Use the promo code BUBS and save 10% off your next order. All right, let's get rolling. My conversation with Dr. Michael Gervais. Michael, really appreciate you uh, carving out some time today for us. I've got a whole list of different topics here I'd love to uh, dive into here today. And I think, you know, to set the stage here, really, I'd love to go back to the beginning of your journey, you know, in terms of mental performance, you know, what got you into mental performance and and how did you know that this, you know, this is it, this is what I want to do. Okay. First, thanks for including me in your community and what you're doing. I've I've appreciated your work. So this is a treat uh, for me to be able to swap some stories and hopefully we have a exchange rather than just a a one-way conversation here, but yeah. (laughs) So it started for me when, um, this is all looking back, you know? So I didn't know mm-hmm. at the time as it was unfolding, how it was working, but it's pretty clear looking back is when I was a young athlete, surfing was my first sport of choice. And, um, I could, there's two types of surfing, there's free surfing and competitive surfing. And in free surfing, mm-hmm. there's a code, you know, and that code was don't talk about it, be about it, put yourself in the most dangerous wave, you know, the day and experience that fully. And then don't check to see if anyone's looking, you know, just know that have this internal knowing and, you know, it's the quote unquote, hardcore approach. And I fit in that. That was cool. And I, I secretly kind of wanted some people to say that was cool, you know, like, but that, that culture was great for me and then flip over to competitive surfing. I wanted to give it a go. And in, in the hardcore surfing world, um, it was like, you know, those kooks over there that are competing, they, they're blowing it for the sport. Like, the, you know, they've got it all backwards. They're sponsored and there's stickers on their board and they're doing splashy things. And I wanted to try, I wanted to give it a go. And um, I should set a little more context is that when I was young and uh, I'm talking like in nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, I, did, I wasn't exposed to the ocean uh, for surfing. And so I, I tried, my parents introduced me to stick and ball sport. And it was yeah. obvious, it was like this reaction I had, which was like, what are these adults screaming at us for? And what are all these rules? Who made up these rules? Like, what do you mean if you put your foot on the line, you're out? Like, 
shit, I got control of the ball. Let's go. You know, I'm thinking soccer right now. So I didn't get these artificial rules and these, you know, these kind of adults screaming at kids. And so I didn't, I didn't vibe it. And that when I felt, when I found action sports, skateboarding, surfing, motocross, BMX, I was like, oh, mother nature's the teacher. (laughs) Like, okay, I got respect. And um, so back to surfing, as soon as I lent my hand to um, competitive surfing, I was a disaster, dude. Like all these people on the beach judging me and critiquing me. And like, yeah, something I else, couldn't right? get it right. And I, I understand now what I understand exactly what was happening. But it was this moment where um, it was a, a another competitor. He was a few years older than me. And he paddled by me. There was just three of us out in the water, per, clean conditions. It was like eight in the morning, exactly what you would hope for, about head high waves, super glassy, great conditions. And he paddles by me nice. and he says, Gervais, I surf with you every day out here. You, you got to stop worrying about what other people are thinking about you. And I was like, how does he know? <laughs> how does he know? Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, how did he, he knew because he, he struggled with it probably, you know, you spot it, you got it. And so... Um, from that moment, I didn't know what sports psychology was. I didn't know anything, but it kind of hit me, which was like, yeah, my body hasn't changed. My skills are the same as yesterday. The hell? It was my mind. And so eventually that was the age 15. Eventually it set me down this path to really want to understand how the mind works because we take it everywhere we go. Boardroom, living room, ocean, pitch, field, court, whatever it might be, we take it. And um, I wanted to get that thing dialed in because it was it was such a mess. So that that's how it started for me. It's interesting. I mean, I growing up playing a lot of team sports. You know, it's very reactionary. You get into the flow of things, and so you shake off a lot of that. And playing into some individual sports, I started playing golf late in my high school years and started getting into it. And then all of a sudden, you played in a tournament, and a little bit similar to what you're saying. So now all of a sudden, everyone's looking at you rather than just being on the course with your buddies. And all these internal thoughts, you have so much time to think rather than react or respond. And, you know, if we, if we sort of fast forward to the early stages of your career, are there some moments that stick out with working with athletes, you know, that were particularly challenging at that point, or that really forced you to, to push yourself outside of that initial comfort zone that we have when we have our training and, and some of the philosophies we want to lay down, but then that reality of the real world practice, you know, presents roadblocks in itself yeah that's a cool question no one's ever asked me that before the um what what happened early on for me was that i right after my graduate training i I needed a job and so action sports you know wasn't they weren't hiring it's a little bit off access back country you know and so um (laughs) so i found myself in pro sport (laughs) it was stick and ball and so I, yeah, back. I'm back and I, I didn't, I didn't quite get it at that time. And they didn't quite, it just wasn't a great fit. So I left after about five years pro sport and went, um, Red Bull fired up a high performance program. And so I was fortunate enough to kind of find a spot in that emerging discipline of sports science inside of action sports. And it's great. it was super electric. It was awesome. And so to answer your question, there was a project I worked on called Red Bull Stratos. And so Felix Baumgartner was the athlete who uh, the team built a capsule. And this was an aerospace engineered you know, project. And he, they built a yeah. capsule, yeah. took him up to 130,000 feet, which is up there. you know, And it's 100,000 feet higher that. than an airliner. And it's kind of the curvature of space. It's right where, right about where you would shoot off to zero gravity into outer space and kind of be out of orbit. There's enough that it wasn't, that part yeah. wasn't dangerous, but it was just really high. Yeah. And, um, you know, the project started to skid because he was developing some fear around, you know, uh, the whole thing. And so we did some good, honest work and that's when, so if you lose a game in stick and ball, mm, you know, Okay. It sucks, you know, but not the end of the world. Yeah. It's not like it was, um, I don't know, 200 or a thousand years ago where the warring tribe took your family, you know, like, okay, that Mm -hmm. loss, that's, that's that's a bad loss. That's the worst. That's as bad as it gets. Right. So in sticking ball, it's so far from that. And then this one was somewhere in between, which is if he makes mistakes, 
or if we made a mistake in our preparation and training, um, or if somebody on the design capsule, you know, made a mistake, like his life is, you know, at risk. And so, uh, that's when I, I had a moment where I was like, I had to take that leap from science using good science, grounded, well-tested laboratory science, and then bridge it into an environment that has not, it has not been tested in the environment that we were working in. So that bridge takes, there's a leap that happens in there. And that's what would keep me up at night, which is taking good grounded science. One, to get your arms around that, that's that's a full lift in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And then to have enough reference points and contextual understanding. So, and those are two, like contextual understanding and reference points are two different dynamic requirements to do good applied science and to have those in place mm-hmm. with a little bit of intuition to say, I think this is how it needs to fold for these circumstances, you know, uh, for Red Bull Stratos, you know, for example. And there was yeah. a moment where um, we didn't know. And so we had to kind of work through some of that stuff. And that was a moment where it, it eventually worked out to kind of get to the end of the story. He was successful and everything was good. But that put the link to the club. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that will um it was a good experience. That that leap when the stakes are that high, uh, I think for all of us applied scientists and athletes that are trying to sort this thing out, it's like, do you really know your shit? And so that's when you 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 can't all of a sudden zoom forward, <laughs> you know, like I got a crash course on whatever this approach is yeah. and figure it out. Like you, you just have to have those reference points, which takes time, the contextual, contextual understanding, and then all of that science to be able to make um, an innovation, a required innovation. So um, that was a time that was super was really testing. I was going to say, I imagine it takes a lot of reading of the athlete too, and the individual in front of you to, to be able to nudge and adjust them as, as they need, because it's going to be different if there was a different athlete or extreme athlete in that situation, I imagine. right? Yeah. The relationship is foundational for psychology and it's like been found to be somewhere around 60 to 70% of intervention effects is based on the relationship itself, which is phenomenal. So if you come in with the best tool, but you don't have any sort of connection, it, it usually doesn't work out. So to your point, yes. And it seems to explain, I mean, if we kind of pivot to medicine and chronic disease, people who go to the doctor, unfortunately, are struggling with high blood sugars, high blood pressure, prediabetes, they only get 15 minutes with their doctor. And it's difficult for the physician to even be able to take on board all these things to build this relationship and then provide, you know, adequate direction when we talk about nutrition or sleep or, you know, mindset being such key pillars that we know now are important for these kind of things. And you know, I want to follow on what we were talking about with your athlete there and this concept that I hear, you know, I've heard you talk about for many years around personal philosophies and how we all have one, but if we're not actively participating in forming this personal philosophy, then a lot of the, all the subconscious thoughts and debris and, and junk that we, th- thoughts that we all have can start to form your own personal philosophy for you. Can you unpack that a little more? Yeah, I want, there's two things in here. I'll, I'll, let me pin that. Don't let me forget the core of your question, but you you hit on something right before that I think is really powerful is that when we are going to an expert, a medical provider or whomever, right? Let's just do the medical world for a moment. And it's 15 minutes. It It's not enough. And so, mm-hmm. we, so I'm classically trained as a psychologist, which means that we, we are trained to understand a cluster of symptoms represents likely this sort of diagnosis. So mm-hmm. traditional medical models are working from a disease approach, a broken approach to say, what are the symptoms so I can categorize it so that I can, in my mind, I can pull down what best practices are for those, that symptom cluster, call it a diagnosis. In 15 minutes, if a doc doesn't take his pen out of his hand, me included, right? I I don't work. I don't work this way anymore. Like it doesn't take the pen out of the hand and really feel. And then to have a first principle to not diagnose, but to see and feel then I'm not interested in that practitioner working with me. I I like that they can categorize 
and clump and lump for speed and efficiency. That's great. That's really good to have a decision. Emergency, emergency medicine. Yeah, Very good. efficiency medicine. And so that's cool. But I, 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 I need, I need personally as a, um, just speaking for me, Mike, I, I need to, I don't fit in boxes. Neither do you, Doc. Like we've got a, we are, we are, our bodies are local. Our minds are non-local. If you can get your arms around that for a minute, it's a cool concept. And then the symptoms don't, aren't quite clean. So I just, all I'm saying right now is that uh, it takes time to really understand person. 15 minutes is the efficiency model, not the human flourishing model. And then, so from that point, if we, if we slightly pivot over, um, time is expensive. So I, I get what I get, why we're in that model, right? I totally get it. But if we have the ability to sit with people that can afford like a real understanding of you, you will have better results in your life. And, um, you won't box yourself into a set of symptoms or a cluster, you know, call it a diagnosis or over identify with, uh, the way the expert sees you. It is materially important that you first understand who you are. What are your guiding principles? And that this is the segue into the core part of your question. Um, if you abdicate and, and you allow the external world to over-index or influence in any way, really, who you are, it's a long road. It's a long life from a very... Um, stressful point of view, because each time you go into a new setting, you have to calibrate. What do they think of me? You know, and that's exhausting. Right. And so the, we want to flip the model and the most powerful people I know, the, the half percenters that are doing the thing that are changing sport, changing an industry, maybe changing the way we understand human potential is that the external world does not influence their internal. And so they're working from the inside out. And so a personal philosophy is a fancy, like two word, you know, little hyphenated um, clause there to say, to, sh to shorthand, like, what are your guiding principles? What are your first principles in life? And if you don't know them, they're going to get whipped around. So let's do this first principle work and write that stuff down. And then the, the next part of that is like, if you can't, get it out under duress it's probably just an academic exercise so like you mm -hmm. you want to be able to get those first principles at least intellectually clear and anchored and then you want to practice them in such a way that they are as automatic as your signature of your um you know your autograph like it's as automatic as yeah. you possibly can and that's how this work comes to life and it, it is a daunting task, isn't it? I mean, because it's something that's dynamic and it's evolving and it's changing. So even in, in nutrition, so much of the work is mindset-based and again, relationship-based to get people to actually comply. And I've been surprised at you know, the, the feedback or the, the progress people can make when they do lean into this, but even surprised at how some very successful people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, particularly men more so than even women, if I have to say, are could be a little bit resistant or almost you know, it almost takes them off guard to actually have to pause, zoom out 30,000 feet and really assess the, their own values versus just kind of chasing, doing, going, achieving. Yeah. I, ditto. I understand. I, I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. And I, and I don't think though, that there's a difference for the, um, let's say the, the difference between the half percenters and, and the, the 0.01 percenters, like they're driving for this. They're like, Oh, this is mm -hmm. great. You know? And they're not caught in the, um, yeah, sometimes they're caught in it, but they understand the difference between the, like the, the treadmill type of life versus like this purpose driven, let me use my imagination to, to see the future as clearly as I can. And then let me back in all the capabilities, technical, physical, nutritional, mental that I need to be able to have that mm -hmm. future, um, even be a shot. You know, so, and, and they also understand Mark that you're not even in the game. If you don't know how your mind works, you're, 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 you're not even in the fucking game, honestly. So like you, you have to know how your mind works and how they work with emotions and the difference between emotions and feelings and to be able to have command of yourself in any environment, Jesus, like it, it, it's, it's a prerequisite in that space. 
and that leads into today we still hear a lot of this championship or bust mentality right it's winning a championship or the years of failure anything apart from the trophy means we haven't succeeded and so you know very binary very ultra specific and you've alluded to obviously vision here so you know can you differentiate between goals and vision and and the potential pitfalls of the sort of if we didn't place first then we finished last yeah it is isn't black and white easy you know to it's so easy very straightforward it's there's many more colors you know Uh, so if we just think about physics and and some of the more physical forms like so the same holds true mentally and so i i mean here's the deal is for me is that if i don't help a team win i'm not asked back so the reality is whether it's business or sport um this is not just a grand experiment, you know, like there's, there is a required outcome that is directly related to finances and um, there's winning pays. So like um, the investment by the owner is, you know, might be binary and it might have a little sensitivity to what it takes to win, which is um, a, a zigzagged up and down, very complicated approach of getting better unless you get really lucky, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, it depends on kind of ownership and, and the philosophy that's guiding underneath. And the, the winner bust is, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to work for those organizations. You know, it's, it, it, it's just missing something uber sensitive about what really happens. And so they're kind of working in an alternate universe that is not how progress takes place. I don't know. I, I don't know what more to say to that other than I haven't been part of a winning program that has ever said that, you know? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But I didn't answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we obviously fear drives a lot of progress, you know, the competition, the fear of failure pushes us to work harder, to practice longer hours. Um, but it all can also to what we started with in the discussion connect can lead to that fight flight freeze mode where all of a sudden we can't express all the things we need to express whether it's at work or on the playing field and i've heard the quote how you know acceptance of the present moment is where fear cannot exist and so you know is, is that true can you again unpack that yeah i don't agree with that um i'm not sure who the author of that idea was but um the present moment is where we have access to what is true. And so I don't want to get too esoteric here, but I'll I'll do my best to make this as concrete as possible is that if what we're trying to do is to link this moment and the next and the next and the next as many thin slices of a moment as we can together. And when we string a bunch together, we find ourselves, um, in what scientists call flow. Okay, so the present moment is the entryway in to high performance. It's the entryway into wisdom. It's the entryway into experiencing the experience. So if I am nervous, pretending like I'm not is a fool's game. You know, like it's it's one, it takes a lot of energy to fake anything, pretend anything. Um, that's kind of a joke. So if I'm aware that I'm nervous and I can label it. So I've got some emotional intelligence to go, Oh, this is nervousness. And then say, Oh, it's, it's actually, yeah, it's in my stomach. That's interesting. All right, cool. And then I've got a couple skills to be able to work with it. So just naming it decreases it and a skill of breathing or self-talk that is grounded and true. And not, I'm not making stuff up like some self-affirmation bullshit, but like you're saying it Mm -hmm. and that, or you label it, you um, recognize it without judgment or critique, which is the practice of mindfulness essentially gives you that skill and ability. And then you've got some skills to work with it. So, so fear does exist. And, um, and if you're aware of it in the present moment, you can do something with it. What happens for many people is that um, the awareness game is not very sophisticated. So they, it's, it's kind of like, imagine if we're at the, top of a rapids, right? You and I push off and like, we're, we're cruising is good. And then we can hear the rapids down the way. 
and we know that yeah. we're going to kind of be up against something. And then all of a sudden we take a big chunk of time out of it. And then all of a sudden we're in the rapids thrashing. So that's what happens for many people is it's all good when it's good. It's easy. And they know maybe something challenging is coming, but then they somehow lose their way in between all of those moments because they're worrying or thinking about other things or distracted by the present, anything that is not to do with the present moment, but time keeps moving. The river keeps moving. And then we find ourselves thrashing mm-hmm. and it's like, shit, I'm kind of a wreck. Like my heart's pounding and, and someone walks by and they're, they're looking like, Hey, you good. And I, and I said, yeah, I'm good. And I'm a mess. <laughs> like it's oh, like yeah. that, that joke of a sequence that I'm just describing is more common than I think any of us would want, but it doesn't, we don't have to be that For way. Sure. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be that way. And when you talk about breathing techniques or mindfulness techniques, are there certain ones for, you know, athletes or practitioners or just getting into this that you use as a way to, to start to build up that sort of, that skill set? So mindfulness is, um, it's necessary, but not sufficient. And I hear my colleagues going, oh my God, what, why does he keep saying that? You know, like, because it is necessary. Mindfulness is one, it's a practice that's been around 2,600 years. The science around it is ridiculous. Um, and at one level, it is increasing your awareness of what's happening with your thoughts, your emotions, your body, the unfolding present moment. Really, it is, it, it is a practice of becoming aware. And again, if you're not aware, you're not even in the game. So there are thousands of types of meditations, but there's two main principles that guide them. Okay. So one main principle is called single point. And so single point is set a timer, whatever, eight minutes, 20 minutes, the research ranges between those two uh, bumpers to, um, to focus on one thing uncommonly, relentlessly without judgment and critique, just focus on it. When your mind wanders, you gently, quickly return back to focusing on it. That's it. And that's a great way to, to not get caught into the, um, the, let's call it the baggage that can come with an uninformed distance from a distance thinking about what mindfulness is, right? There's some baggage that can come with the word meditation. Like, are we hugging trees? No. Yeah. What's doing here? Going yeah. On? But if you want to start in a really concrete way and you focus let's just say like on your inhale and then on your exhale with all of your essence, Mark, focus on the inhale. And then with all of your might and essence, you know, in the easiest, most gentle way. So it's not rigid, focus on your exhale and rinse and repeat for eight minutes. And that, that is, that's a challenge now. I was going to say, it's a good, you know, we get a lot of coaches, SC coaches, therapists, practitioners asking around these strategies for mindfulness, particularly I mean, with all types of athletes, but a lot of younger athletes as well. Like, where do we start with just developing? Um, and I've heard some practitioners and scientists talking about even in kids preschool, putting a, a bear or a stuffed toy on their belly and starting to experience that to just be able to introduce. But imagine getting up to that sort of eight minutes with a, you know, a younger group would be a great target. Easy. Right? Yeah, it's not, it's, it's quite, it's wonderful, actually. You know, like when you first expose people to it and just like all training, you don't just say, Hey, do this. And I'll, let's check in later. It's more like, let's walk through it together. Yeah. And people find themselves like, Oh God, thank you. Like that was great. And, and at times it's really challenging because sometimes it's the hardest 10 minutes of my time of my day, you know, or 20 minutes of my day. But yeah. I will say, um, I would not pretend to, um, walk somebody through a sophisticated nutritional plan. So, and, and, and I've been in the trenches with really switched on nutritionists for a long time. You know, I've got enough of the glow from it. And I studied, my master's degree was in exercise science. So I've got a little bit of, you know, enough to, you know, to recognize some, what a Krebs cycle is and whatever. So, so I would not pretend though. So I say to a strength coach, wait, hold on. Is this, is this the direction you're taking your practice? Okay, good be great at this then, because it's, it is a sophisticated mm-hmm. science. It is a sophisticated tool and it might be one of the most 
um, complicated dimensions of the human experience because it's all invisible. And I'm going to sound like I'm on a soapbox here a little bit, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, like, what are we doing? I don't like, honestly, go connect to somebody that's got the right vibe and they've got a decade or two decades under their belt of sitting their ass on a pillow, studying that science themselves to figure out like how, how mindfulness works before you say, Hey, you know, like, let me lead a session or you should go do that or just download this app. I don't know. I, yeah, I, mean, I think the frame sometimes comes from just around programs that are underfunded, whether it's sort of one person who's doing a lot of different tasks and typically like yeah. an entry level way of saying, how, how do we get them to start even thinking about some of these things? But I can appreciate that on the other end of the scale, we do see what you're suggesting, which is even at the higher end, we've got practitioners who are anesthesia doing therapy type things or vice yeah. versa. And yeah, it's like at that point, we need to be getting the people in that are going to be, you know, at the tip of the spear here doing it correctly. Yeah, and I think even in the underfunded programs is like there are there are community members that would love to work with your team mm -hmm. that have been that are highly trained psychologists or they are mindfulness practitioners that have been that you know they would love to introduce it because their life is dedicated around it. I think yeah a big part of high performance and human potential exploration is mobilizing and in involving the community that you are part of. And so yeah. there are resources. And, and I know that sounds like I'm out of touch. Especially today, yeah. right? I mean, and I just, yeah. And I just want to say, I'm, I'm not out of touch with this. Like I didn't come from, I didn't come from resources. And so, um, you know, mm -hmm. I understand the, I also appreciate scrappiness, like, in a, but I, I've, I've lived it. And so it's great. I'd rather have a gym that's a little rusted than the slick Rick, everything, you know, it's like, I, I want that. Yeah. But anyways, so I digress. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. This is just a quick note to let you all know, Athlete Performance Nutrition is hosting a free online event, Football Performance Nutrition on June 22nd to 24th, 2022. Speakers to date include Kate Calloway of the Carolina Panthers, John Parenti of the Miami Dolphins, Will Greenberg of the Buffalo Bills, Matt Frakes, Director of Nutrition for LSU Football, and more to be announced soon. Get up to speed on the latest research and cutting-edge insights from people working in the trenches in pro and elite college football. Join us for this free event. Just head over to performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football and sign up in the big blue box. That's performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football to register and get access to this free event. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Well, I was going to say, I mean, we talked about fear and then I was going to segue into how great teams or the, the, the vibe, let's call it around a team, when they're playing well, there's a lot of smiling, there's a lot of laughing. Teams that aren't playing well look pretty serious. And when you get to pro sport, it is serious. And so people take their profession seriously, they practice seriously, yet there's still this undercurrent of, joy or laughter or, or connection that you see and you know we, we call it great culture on certain teams you know got the nba playoffs now and you can see it you can feel it on those teams and it feels kind of easy and effervescent and the other teams it feels difficult and the more serious they get the more the worse things seem to get so you know from your vantage point how, how do those things start to impact you know the mindset the mental performance can that come first or does it come as a result of, of hmm, that's a cool question. The, what comes first, uh, confidence or success confidence. Hmm. Now, how do you build confidence? It's not built on success. It's built on what you say to yourself about yourself. And so if you just use that frame for a moment, right. Um, and then map that over to the culture that you're talking about is that what comes first, the culture, or the psychology, it's the psychology. And so it, so how does culture get built? It's having an understanding of how you would like to have, what culture you would like to have as a leader. So this, I'm speaking to a coach, mm -hmm. or I'm speaking to like a captain, right? Or a business lead is that using this really powerful imagination that you, we all have and having an idea of the culture that you'd like to have 
And then first order business is like writing that down so it's clear. Second order business is hiring people or drafting people that fit. So what you're describing is like a, a culture of joy and a culture of intensity, both work. But what the mismatch is, is if you want a cult, if if you want a culture of joy, but you're hiring a bunch of intense people, mm, you can do it, you know, right. It's, but if you, if you want to have kind of a, you know, Stephen Curry, Steve Kerr kind of joy, happiness type thing, but you're only hiring, you know, I don't know. You know what I mean? Right. Like really intense. Yeah. Mama yeah, like mentality. It's, it's just, a, it, that's where it's not a fit. Okay. And then what you want to do underneath of that is develop the psychological skills to play with joy or develop the psychological skills to stay deeply focused when you're intense. And those are somewhat different, not materially different, but there's a different reason. You're pointing to a different place for the skill and uh, using that skill, right? Hammer's a hammer, but if you if you're pointing at a different way, sometimes you got to tap it lightly and sometimes you just got to take a big swing. And that's the analogy. Yeah, analogy for the mental skill. But that that's how the formula really works. But what you're describing is when you see in a culture that they look like they're really tense, it's probably because they haven't trained how to how to have that space in the intensity. Or maybe the the, the team lead is saying, we need to play fun, but they hired a bunch of intense dudes or, or women, you know, like that's mm-hmm. just a mismatch. And how does body language fit into this? I've heard Jim Aframo talk about how, you know, body language is sort of a, a sign or signal of, of mental toughness. And the, the athlete I often think about is, is Rory McIlroy back in the day when he was younger, winning majors and just sort of strutting down the fairways, looking like he's not thinking twice about any shots yeah. that he's hitting and absolutely striping it. And then as his career progresses, still a tremendous golfer, obviously top, you know, top five, top 10, but somehow not winning those majors. And all of a sudden we don't seem to see the same whether it's smile or walk or these types of things, like is the body language, again, can we fake the body language to elicit the mental state we want to be in, or is the mental state just going to impact the body language and we're at the mercy of it? How does yeah. that work? Uh, two, I like it as a question. Two, two ideas that are baked in there is one, as just a first principle, like I'm not going to support anything in my life that is fake. So like fake it till you make it, I don't get it. You know, like, I I don't want my surgeon to fake it. I don't want my psychologist to fake it. You know, like I, 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 you know, like I want the real thing, like whatever the real thing is like, let's work with it. Um, Okay. So, so, but what you're asking there is bottom up or top down. So if we change our physiology or physical or change our physical form, does it influence our mind? Yeah. If we change our mind, does it influence our physical form? Yeah. And then if you add one more layer of complexity is that we are communicating to ourselves more than we communicate to anyone else. And we're communicating to, to others in two ways, verbally and non-verbally. Okay. So the verb, the words and what we're looking for in others and ourselves is alignment because that indicates a level of trust. So when there's misalignment, it's like, what is really going on? And humans are really good at picking up bullshit. But like, it's a survival tactic deep in the brain. So again, there's two levels of communication, mm-hmm. verbal and nonverbal. In the nonverbal, it's body language and micro expressions. And so we're, we are telling our community oftentimes how we're thinking. And if, we're, if we've trained our thoughts to be a certain way, let's call it joyful, you know, and grateful mm-hmm. and, and focused. And when we're at the first tee and we've trained our mind to go, God, I love this. Like, I really love it. This is awesome that this is my life. And like, okay, let me lock in and focus. Mm-hmm. Then body language would be the natural downstream of that. So the work starts upstream. Let's go back to the beginnings of getting in the river together and, and understand how to do the work. So the downstream is eloquent. If you work from the bottom up, it's harder, but we don't, you know, it's so much easier to work with the physical form than the non-physical. The deeper work yeah. is non-physical. Okay. Um, but if you wanted to, if you're like, I don't get what you're talking about, I would say. Well, is that like an acute way, an acute strategy whilst you're building out the mental, the non, 
physical of being able to influence you out of the body to, to kind of get you through those periods. I, that I don't think the bandage really say, holds up. I like the word acute, gotcha. right? But I don't think that bandaid, you know, like stand with your head up and your shoulders. Stress test this. Yeah. Work. Like head up, shoulders back. That's cool for a moment. But then as soon as I go, oh shit though, what the, oh my God, Jesus. Like all of a sudden I'm going into a protect mm-hmm. posture, which is not, you know, and then if I'm saying to myself, Jesus, oh my God, oh my God, but my head is up now that I got that misalignment. Now that's like a really, mm-hmm. gotcha. Yeah. So, so it's, um, I'll be super concrete with this. Your thoughts are your responsibility. Get to know your thoughts, know how to work with your thoughts and emotions, know what optimal productive, you know, progressive thinking looks like for you. And then, um, you become a beacon of alignment where you're walking in any environment. And you're like, Hey, I'm at home with me. <laughs> I know exactly how to switch on mm. this internal system to be my best. That's not hard. Go get a sports psych, get a mental skills, you know, person to, to go do that deep work with. And if you don't have that resource, listen to podcasts, you know, like read books, yeah, access, yeah, to access right? you know, mobilize your community or mobilize the information that's available. And then thirdly on it is like, listen to yourself. That's where mindfulness comes in. Like without judgment, critique, like mm. no, know how thought one and thought two work with emotion one and emotion two, figure it out. And, and for you, is, is journaling a part of that for, for individuals of being able to write down some of these thoughts to be able to sort of see them concretely versus having these things kind of pinging around this, what is it? 60,000 thoughts a day that everyone is having um, some of the recurring ones that might be causing anxiety, stress. Yeah. We don't know the exact number because we can't see it, but there's an interesting math that you get to. I, yeah. I know the research that you're pointing to for the 60,000 um, journaling is found to be a best practice. I don't do it. I. I write stuff down so I don't lose it. And I write stuff down that I really want to make concrete. So it is, that's why it's okay. a best practice, but I don't journal every day. I'd rather do mindfulness work. Mm-hmm. There's three, there's three approaches um, that I'd suggest for folks that want to discover more mindfulness, yeah. journaling and conversations with wise people and having some sort of hybrid or deep commitment to one or all of those would be the most accelerated path for discovery. Tremendous. And, you know, that whole discussion leads me into today's world where, you know, mental health is front and center and seemingly over the last decade, whether you're an early teen or middle age or older adult, you know, anxiety, depression rates are really going up um, across the board. Mm. And, so it seems that obviously the focus of, you know, we've seen sleep science, nutrition science in the last decade, couple of decades really exploding. And now obviously mindset and mental performance has always been important, but seemingly in the last five years and or so, it's, it's really become front and center in, in people's attention and minds. And, you know, in my practice, I see a lot of anxiety and depression increasing and in, in surprising situations and situations where you might say, well, geez, this person has you know, this job, this status, this success, you know, why might they be experiencing this? And I've heard, you know, another quote around this, maybe you can give us your take on, which is, you know, anxiety is when you don't live up to the expectations of others and depression is when you don't live up to your own. I would, the way I think about anxiety in a most simplest form is that it's an excessive worry about what could go wrong. It's um, Mm. the word excessive is the important part. So anxiety is a clinical term that means something in the, in the psychological professional world, anxiousness and worry are, you know, non-clinical, but there's sub components to, to, Mm -hmm. to have an anxiety attack or to be clinically, uh, or to clinically have anxiety, but essentially it's an excessive worry about later. And it's, they're experienced yeah. like in your mind or experienced in your body. It's called somatic, somatic anxiety and or both. Okay. So anxiety is future oriented. And then depression is um, it's more critical. And so depression is um, it's marked by three components. I suck. You suck. The world sucks. And then an underlying is always going to be like this. 
So, and I'm putting in the word mm-hmm. suck for something else. Like, you know, um, I, I see the bad in you. I see the bad in me. I see the bad in the world. And, you know, I see the negative in you, the negative in me, the negative in the world. And it's kind of always going to be like this. So depression is. That last piece seems quite powerful, doesn't it? That yeah. It's always going to be like Yeah, this that's component. the hard part. And then it's experienced um, both mentally and physically as well. And then I say that because um, that's how I conceptualize the two. And then we don't have a psychological disorder that is not correlated with sleep, a sleep disorder. So there's not, there's not one, they're, they're intimately linked. And so chicken and egg, I'm not talking in that order. I'm just saying the two are intimately linked. And then in this profession of sport and performance psychology, there's, there's two components to it. There's the mental health piece. And then there's also the optimization Mm -hmm. and high performance piece. And so just kind of getting your arms around those two, there's a unique intersection between those two. They can live alone, but they rarely do. Um, Both. Yeah. There's a continuum between the two and the intersection is what I'm most interested in. Like high performance without well-being is unsustainable. It can happen. You know, it can definitely happen. Well-being without performance that can happen, you know, like, so I'm interested in that intersection that, uh, it's a, it's a, it's like a nested type of vibrancy that is so electric. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that picture around anxiety of just sort of being frayed at the edges of, like you mentioned, underslept over caffeinated, you know, glucose excursions, high and low through the day. We've got this individual who's just burning the candle at both ends. And then it's, we, you know, we pick up on the, the exacerbates these types of symptoms that you describe. And, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, it's always interesting because we tend to see, yeah, you know, over six milligrams per kg of caffeine is going in. We're wondering why we can't sleep. We're consuming sugar right before bed because of the, you know, that constant stream of stress. And so from that angle, I'm always viewing my role as just being able to raise the playing field because we're not going to be able to get into all the psychological areas that a you know, a psychologist or psychiatrist is going to be able to do, but it's always interesting how even just addressing some of those things seems to be able to, to you know, to, to raise the tide, if you will, to be able to better support some outcomes. I'm not sure, you know, what your experience is. Obviously, you mentioned obviously having some experience with nutrition, how you in- integrate it, but interested to hear your thoughts on how all the, that holistic model really impacts some of these mental health conditions. Humans are so multidimensional that as many... Un- uh, evidence-based understandings as we can have, the better we can find solutions and the most efficient way through. And so, for example, if somebody is presenting with, let's say, performance anxiety and just kind of a little bit, a little too edgy, whatever, whatever, before um, competitions, and we're like, okay, well, let's take a look at things. And and it, it seems to be like, and they haven't done a, a blood draw or they haven't looked at I don't know, tryptophan, tyrosine, they haven't looked at, you know, some basic stuff then, yeah. uh, or homovanilator. They haven't looked at the stuff around that from a neuropeptide standpoint, like, oh, well, that would be an opportunity. And then it, it would, it's for me, it's not that different than asking them about sleep. And now that we've got mm-hmm. decent, you know, com- uh, consumer grade, um, sleep monitoring, decent, call it, that, yeah. um, we're starting to see decent assessments for um, at scale for nutrition. And obviously if you can work with someone like yourself that has a full command and it's bespoke and customized, then that's where we really start. It starts to come alive. And I, I like things, I, I like to understand like the neurotransmitter support s- systems. I also like mm-hmm. to look at um, mm-hmm. Uh, C-reactive protein as an uh, indicator of some stress. I like to look at um, oleic acid and nervonic acid, omegas. I like to look at those for like, what is the support mes- mechanisms for uh, neural firing? You know, so there's that type of stuff I'm interested yeah. in. And I'm sure there's lots more um, that you would say is related to brain performance and psychological performance as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like you mentioned around even the sleep technology. I mean, I always find it interesting that one of the biggest aha moments for clients is just seeing that, you know, after half a bottle of wine, their resting heart rate overnight goes from 60 to 85, right? 
So despite all the other bells and whistles that the technology provides, that's sort of one of the big moments that, you know, you've been telling your client yeah. to cut back for X amount of months, but now they can actually see it for themselves. And, you know, I don't want to take any red wine away from anyone on the weekends, but if we're doing it, you know, six, seven nights a week and we're struggling with sleep or mood and recovery, these kind of things, and it becomes many, a key. Uh, how many hours for you does it take to process um, a seven ounce glass of, of wine before it affects your sleep? I've got three small kids at home, so I feel like my, how, how wine affects me now is yeah. much different than 10 years ago. Um, I feel like if I even get past a glass the next morning, is I can feel the sluggishness and you know the impact on deeper sleep and the REM sleep starts to really... I found rear two its, hours. Rear its a little bit for me. You know, so like if I had a glass and then at about that two yeah. hour, if like if I have a glass, first of all, we should talk about intermittent, you know, in, in just a second, if you don't mind, but like two, two hours as a processing. Yeah. So if I, if I had two glasses, I need four hours before to at least process enough where it's not compromising sleep. Um, and there's still a slight compromise, but not a rich compromise. Yeah. And that's always the, the, the double-edged sort of starting earlier helps to then get better sleep. But if you, if you don't stop, then all of a sudden you're at three or four glasses. Well, listen, that segues way into talking about, you know, coaches, health, practitioners, health, frankly, anybody's health and midlife has got a busy job, maybe kids at home. Because when I, you think of athletes and overtraining, we see things like low mood being a common symptom of, of overtraining. And for the rest of the coaches and practitioners and the rest of us in their forties and beyond, it's, it's the life load, right? It's the lack of sleep. It's the busy workplace. It's the kids and family commitments that then becomes difficult to recover from. And we see the similar symptoms of an athlete overtraining. We see the lower mood, lower libido, all these types of things. And so, you know, coaches are great at providing that support to their group, but oftentimes we don't see them providing that support to themselves. And so I'm always wondering, you know, as someone who works in performance, what aspects can you convey to the to performance staff or how do you go okay. about some of those conversations? This is really important because this is like, you know, the, the teach when the teacher's tired, the students will notice that, you know? So um, mm. over time, like you can, you can get by for a little bit, but when we start to turn the gaze on the coaches of them being their very best from a psychological, um, physiological perspective, it, it is, is awesome. They love it. And it, making some of those changes is really hard as well for them. And so just starting with the basics, like, okay, what are you eating? What are the patterns of eating macronutrients first from your perspective? And then from my perspective, it's like more like, okay, mm -hmm. uh, how is sleep? You know, what are the thoughts that are working for you? Do you have any breathing strategies, you know, to help you through um, high stress experiences? And so, you know, like um, when we turn the gaze on them, it's awesome. They love it. They eat it up. And sometimes they rigidly don't want to, they, there's an old model that, you know, in the NFL that you got to get there at six in the morning and you're not a grinder unless you leave, yeah. you know, after 10. And so <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a long work day for eight months straight. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and again, I guess they're chipping away at those types of things when the culture set, it's, it's really like swimming up, but you know, swimming against yeah, the oh, current yeah. pretty intensely. Yeah, definitely. However, though, like, um, like I said, they want it. They, they, and it's all, it's like when a coach is struggling say they throw out their back or like a disc has slipped or something, I understand that no, the coach doesn't want to get on the table because that the athlete, you know, needs the work first. But if that coach is a distraction mm -hmm. and a mess and he, you know, his pain is getting in the way of him being able to sleep well and do good work and think well, like we got to get him on the table. Same for psychology. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, with your podcast over the years, I'm wondering, obviously you've had so many tremendous guests. Are there some that, that come to mind just right now off the cuff moments where you really felt uh, some wisdom or some pearls that were coming up from different topics that you covered over the time that have really actually influenced you or your practice over the years? One of the ones I think that's coming up right now is on frameworks for leadership. And it was, the podcast was, was with Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. And we got right down into his philosophy and how he's built a framework to be able to 
help people have their own as well. And so that's a really good one. I think that, mm-hmm. if, you know, for leaders in your community, you'll love that one. And then um, Bob Bowman was Michael Phelps coach for a long time. And he shared stories about, you yeah. know, how they, how much mental imagery they did. And I don't know why that's coming to mind right now, just cause you know, uh, but it was great. Like Michael Phelps would see himself perform well, obviously, you know, at record pace time. And he'd also see himself have record pace time with his goggles filling up and his suit kind of, you know, getting ripped off and like all of, he's seeing all of that compromised states so that there was very few surprises, you know, like he was able to button it all up. And so ranging from, you know, coaches to leaders, um, all the way to, we've had some musicians on that, um, like, now Rogers, while you might not know his name, he's kind of the the funk behind so many hits. And so, yeah, like thinking Big about hits, yeah. the the performers behind the scenes as well. And he's all he's a uh, guitarist, so he's out front as well. But like, so there's there's a just a deep range of folks that are um, kicking ass on the world stage. Awesome. And and when you look at the future, you know, the evolution of of mental performance over the next five or ten years, what's got you excited in the research for things that are coming down the pipeline that are going to be the next evolution here is as mental performance is sort of taking center stage here and in the, in the, as in, as the next frontier. Really. I think what's taking place is the language is going to be more familiar and the practices will be more integrated. And so right now, even 20 years ago, you ask a coach or an athlete, like how important is the mental part of the game? And they nod their head. Oh yeah. Yeah. At this level. And then you say, you know, well, okay. So how much, time in the, in the day are we spending on the training of the mind? Like What? You know, like we're always doing it. Oh, really? Always. What do you mean by always? You know? And then when you drill into it, it's like, Oh, Mm. we ask, we tell the guys they should do some imagery like at home. (laughs) It's like, is that where you ask? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, or the, or the very special ones, you know? So anyways, the the language is going to become more familiar. Uh, and the sensitivity in that language is going to, you know, it's going to be great. And then how to practice training your self-talk or being calm, you know, confidence is a skill that we can train imagery, blah, 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 fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many that that will become. So I think what we're going to see is not necessarily like this mad rush to the frontier. We're going to see a, a more of a foundational approach um, from pros all the way down to, uh, to the youth uh, and in between the strata in between, we're going to see like it embedded more often, which is exciting. Tremendous. And, and, and quickly, last one for you with technology and obviously working with practitioners, it's such a complex space. How do we navigate that intersection? Because we can obviously learn so many skills through an app, but through this conversation, you know, talking about how it's to build that relationship is two thirds of the solution to be able to achieve some of these things. And so I always wonder how do we sort of square that? There are incredible technologies that are helping us advance human potential and knowing how to, knowing the difference between a toy and a tool is really important. So practitioners knowing the difference and not thinking that something is a tool when actually it doesn't hold up the science. So there's a lot of toys that are presenting Mm -hmm. like tools from a cognitive performance standpoint. So noticing that difference, knowing that difference will be materially important. Um, and if you don't know the difference, like have someone in your community that that's what they know, you know, so that that's important. Yeah. Um, the other piece that is exciting that I think is taking place is that we're having more honest conversations. So there's a first principle that I'll share with you is, that has been important to me is that through relationships, we become. And so it's the relationships Mm -hmm. in this order, your relationship with yourself. So if you add that dimension of honesty, like having honest conversations with yourself, that's starting to happen more relationships with others and having honest conversations with each other about each other. That's happening more. We're becoming more sophisticated relationships with the planet. That's happening relationships with machines and I'm ahead of myself here, but in nine years, we will have a computer that is smarter than the smartest person on the planet. So we are going to need relationships with machines in meaningful ways. And if we treat them like we're afraid of them and they're smarter than us, 
and they're smarter dogs. than us. They are <laughs> right. They they will feel that oh, these humans are ostracizing are ostracizing us. Like, hmm, maybe we should band together against the humans. <laughs> you know, and there's a sci-fi narrative in here somewhere. But through relationships yeah, that we become say. and the honesty of those conversations are the governor to your potential. If you're not honest with yourself, there's a governor on your potential. And that shit takes courage. Mm -hmm. And then same with other people. And I'll add this, just this last dimension is that nobody does the extraordinary alone. So those relationships with others are materially important. And if they're not honest, we've got a governor on the potential of what we can do together. So I think that framework holds true. Tremendous. I mean, great, great insights as always. Mike, really appreciate you carving out some time. Uh, I'm sure everyone knows how to get in touch with you, but what's the best place to stay connected and then listen to the podcast? Yeah, I appreciate uh, this conversation and the questions and introducing me to your community in this way. Thank you. Uh, Finding Mastery as a podcast on all the players. The website is findingmastery.net. And uh, you can find about, you know, what we're doing in corporate environments and what some of the individual solutions we have for folks to, to train their mind. And um, so it's both of them. Yeah. So findingmastery.net. And then the social world is fun. Like it's, it's awesome. Like I, we, we have fun on uh, all the different platforms that way too. Awesome. Listen, thanks, thanks again. Mark. I've always appreciated the time. Thank you for listening to the performance nutrition podcast to watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode. Check out our YouTube channel performance nutrition podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.